Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depth of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about paternal pasts and homeland horrors. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Luciano Marano and Dan A. Cardoza are voice talents Justin Reynolds and Trevor Rines. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on and turn on the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by Luciano Marano and is performed by Justin Reynolds. They say one thing a growing boy never forgets is the day they find out their father isn't as heroic as they think they are. Sometimes when the mighty fall, they fall hard. Now, without further ado, I present to you my father's monster. I only ever saw my father cry once. He came home from work that evening and locked up his gun belt like he always did. Then he sat on the back porch alone and proceeded to drink a case and a half of Coors while watching the sky get dark. After I'd put my little brother to sleep, and him all the time asking, 
What's wrong with Dad? I went all back to look at my father. He was sitting in an old lawn chair surrounded by empties with his head in his hands, making small choking noises. Standing behind him, I thought at first he was throwing up, but when I moved a little closer, I saw that he was crying. I'd never seen him like that before, not even when Mom left. I didn't know what to do, so I turned around and went back inside. I laid awake for most of the night until eventually I heard him stumble inside. The screen door screeched and slammed shut behind him. He was asleep on the couch still in his uniform when we left for school the next day. My father liked his beer, but I hardly ever saw him drunk. I could always tell the few times that he did get drunk he would talk slower and smile more. But being drunk was not a luxury he afforded himself often. He used to say that the sheriff was always on duty, especially in a small town like ours. Many times when I was a kid, I remember being woken up by the phone ringing in the middle of the night, somebody calling my father. I remember him talking on the phone, always too quiet for me to make out his words but still hearing his voice. I would listen to him get dressed and put his boots on, then the screen door screeching as he left. Usually he would be home before too long. It was a small town and people tended to call the sheriff for every little thing. When the phone rang in the middle of the night like that, it was usually just a fight down at the All-Stars Saloon. Maybe an accident out on the highway. He usually got called in for that stuff too. To see my father cry was to me a very strange thing. He always seemed so impossible to hurt. I once saw him pull a fish hook out of his own hand when my brother didn't look back before casting and accidentally hooked him. There was blood all over the place, but he just pulled it out and wrapped his hand in a rag. He told my little brother to be more careful. Once while putting up Christmas lights on our own house, he slipped and fell off the roof. He didn't even wince when he got up, and he drove himself to the doctor with a broken arm. There are all kinds of pain though. I didn't know that then, but I surely know it now. My father never cried when he got hurt. That kind of pain doesn't bother a certain kind of man. It wasn't until later that I found out what kind of pain made a man like my father cry. It wasn't until later that I found out what happened that day at work. The monster had already eaten three people. That's what all the kids say anyway. Before old man Sanderson brought it to his reptile zoo. Way back when the highway still ran through town, the monster had eaten three people down around Lake Okeechobee. When it was finally caught, they say it took two dozen bullets just to knock the thing out. They say it took two pickup trucks to haul it out of the water. They say it's over a thousand years old and it can eat a grown man in two bites. The monster. A 16 foot long alligator lived in a cement basin behind the zoo. There was a high fence around the pool and also a patch of grass for it to lay out in the sun on. Old man Sanderson used to feed it scraps he got from the butcher shop in town. Chunks of rancid beef and pork that went bad before people could buy it. The transportation people used to give him bags of roadkill they'd scraped up too. The monster would eat anything. My father once said that people used to come from as far as Texas to see the monster before the highway moved. It was, he said, the largest living alligator in the whole country. That anybody had caught, that is. 
The zoo was a cheap and dirty roadside attraction. Old Man Sanderson had the mind for business, but not the discipline. There were a bunch of aquariums full of snakes and a fenced-off area of grass where he had these three big ancient tortoises roaming tiredly around. Kids could climb in and pet them. He sold t-shirts and wooden snakes that slithered through the air when you held them up by the tail. He sold maps and alligator jerky. He sold soda and water to the tourists before they got back in their cars. Mostly everybody came to see the monster. My father took us out to see the alligator one time that I remember. I stood by the fence looking so hard for it, and I didn't see anything. My father pointed to the pool and I saw nothing but a few sticks floating in the brown, tepid water. Then it moved. It was just a small splash as the alligator swam from one side to another, but I saw it. I saw the water roll away from its giant body, still mostly hidden beneath the surface. I saw its nose. I saw its eyes looking right at me. It must have been massive under there. It crossed the whole pool in just one short move. Then I felt bad for the alligator. It was so big and kept in such a small pool. I asked my father about it later, but he said that alligators don't need lots of room like a dog does. He said it was just fine there. I did not believe him though. I had seen its eyes and they looked sad. It was scary to me to think that I could be so close to something that big and not see it right away. It was almost like it didn't want me to see it. My brother was just a stupid little kid, and he asked old man Sanderson why he had to lock the gate since alligators don't have any hands. The old man just laughed and said that when a creature has lived as long as that old gator has, he learns a thing or two and maybe we'd be just better safe than sorry. I did not know the kid who got eaten. Depending on who you talk to now, he was either going to Atlanta with his parents or spending the summer with his uncle in Pensacola when he came to the zoo. The paper just said that he was six. My father never said anything about any of it. Nobody knows for sure why the kid was at the zoo that day, and nobody seems to know how he got past the fence. Like I said, it was a cheap and dirty roadside zoo, but there was a fence. There was a gate near the back by the pool, but it was padlocked and only old man Sanderson had the key to get in and feed the alligator. Maybe the lock was broken. Maybe there was a hole somewhere in the rusty old fence. Maybe the monster just got right up out of the water and opened the door himself. <laughs> I guess it doesn't make any difference now. It doesn't matter how many times I hear the story told and retold. What happened next is always the same. I guess that must mean it's true. They say the little boy stood there next to the pool of filthy brown water, and just for a second it looked as if the alligator might not be awake. Maybe it hasn't seen him yet. It just laid there in the water so very still, like it wasn't even breathing. Its eyes were closed, they say. The boy stood there looking at the gator for a long minute. Then he turned around as if to leave. Standing there looking back toward the fence with his back to the monster, they say that he waved. But he never got to take a single step. In a split second, with a great splash, the monster had him between its teeth. The boy screamed as the teeth sank into his back and stomach. Then the beast slid back into the water, dragging him along. 
They both went under and everything was quiet for a really long time. I understand that alligators kill their prey with either a quick neck snapping attack or by holding them in their vice-like jaws and drowning them as they roll over and over in the water. What I've never heard of is an alligator taking its prey hostage before. I am taken to understand that sort of behavior would be beyond the intelligence of such a creature. Still, there are things in nature that can't be explained, and maybe every creature is just as smart as it needs to be. The boy did not die right away amazingly. The monster must have let him loose because the boy climbed out of the disgusting water onto the patch of grass behind the pool. He was choking and gasping and screaming and bleeding, and the alligator was swimming back and forth below him, making a terrible hissing sound and watching the fence, almost like it was pacing. By the time my father arrived, it had become apparent that the monster was deliberately keeping the boy trapped. When old man Sanderson came through the gate with his pistol, the alligator thrashed around and lunged up out of the water toward him. Getting off two shots before being chased back out of the gate, the old man must have realized it would not let the boy go so easily. My father had brought his large shotgun which he carried with him as he walked alone through the unlocked gate. The gator was lying in the grass on the far side of the pool next to the boy, who some say had gone quiet at this point. My father stood on the other side of the pool and raised his gun at the monster, then paused. The monster raised its head, mouth open wide, staring right back at him. That awful hissing sound began again like air escaping from a giant tire. Sometimes I wonder what my father was thinking about just then. I wonder what he was feeling when he drew on that alligator. He paused for what they say was a long time. I imagine him looking into those gator eyes. The same sad eyes I saw looking at me from the dark water. I think about that and I feel scared. I feel tricked. Now I don't think that the alligator was ever really sad. I think it was smart enough to lie maybe. I think it wanted me to feel bad. And get just a little bit closer. Then too quickly to even be seen, the monster snapped its jaws shut on the boy and lunged toward the pool. My father fired once, twice. The gator's immense body floated in the warm brown water, which was slowly darkening as blood poured into it from the gaping wound in the monster's head, a large crater of gore just above the creature's left eye. My father walked to the side of the pool and very calmly shot it two more times. Many people have said that if my father shot sooner, that boy would still be alive. The gator crushed the boy's skull almost flat, trying to drag him back into the water there at the end. A lot of people say my father was scared, and that's why he waited so long. They say that's why the little boy is dead. My father never said anything about it one way or another. I don't think he listened much to those people. He gave no interviews after the official press conference. He was in all the newspapers and even on TV. A lot of other folks say he was a hero for killing the monster after what it had done. I don't think he listened much to those people either though. Old man Sanderson wanted to have the alligator stuff so he could display it and keep the zoo open. My father would not allow it. He drained the cement basin and burned the alligator there. He even took the bones and ashes away in a burlap sack afterward. 
To this day, I do not know what he did with them. Many people have asked me. I would tell them if I knew. I really would. The zoo closed down not even a year later. My father did not say anything about that either. When I think about my father sitting outside in his chair that night, mechanically draining beers until he could not stand up straight, crying all alone in the yard, it is easy to believe that he blamed himself for not saving that boy in time. I think now that maybe he did. I think that maybe he sat out there all night asking himself the same thing everybody else was asking. Why had he waited so long? I don't know why my father waited so long to shoot the alligator, but I do not think he was scared. My father was never afraid of anything in his life. I believe that. I think maybe when he locked eyes with the monster over the barrel of that shotgun and the whole world became just those two looking into each other, I think maybe the alligator got scared of my father. Maybe that's why he made the last leap for the water where he felt safe. That's why it hesitated to kill the boy. Maybe my father wanted to save that boy more than the alligator wanted to kill him. And when the gator saw that, the monster panicked. It must be quite something for a creature like that to suddenly find out one day that he is not the top of the food chain as he so long believed. The monster was afraid of my father. I believe that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed My Father's Monster, as written by Luciano Marano and voiced by Justin Reynolds. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author Dan A. Cardoza and is performed by Trevor Rines. This is an odd horror story with a touch of ghostly and sci-fi aspects about it. It involves a location in Nebraska that is not well known, with the exception of ghosts, shape-shifting creatures, and native folklore. Now, without further ado, I present to you... Horror at Sheep's Creek, Nebraska. The boys had one thing in common. Two things, if you count being overly curious. Both were troubled loners. I'd seen the trade before. They seemed more comfortable wandering the prairie or looking for trouble. Sheep's Creek is part of the Lakota territories. The territory belongs to our ancestral tribe. 
Sheep's Creek Formation is located here. The region of Sheep's Creek is home to this geological gold mine of digs from the Neogene period. The Neogene period included the woolly mammoth and horses the size of small cars. The land exists in western Nebraska, somewhere between here and there. Sheep's Creek has a dark reputation. People have gone missing there for years. The locals refuse to admit there's a problem. They don't want to disturb the paranormal income stream. Since perpetuity, our people have lived peacefully with the region's celestial ghosts, Wanahi. But this story is not about me, spirits, or the time-space continuum. It's about two boys. They'd visited the abandoned Johnson farmhouse on multiple occasions. What was left of the farmstead was located in the central plains of western Nebraska, near an area known as Sheep's Creek. The ghostly buildings of Sheep's Creek are located a little north of Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, a region well known for sugar beets and sugar beet processing factories. Over the many storied years, most farmers found it impossible to make a living in the area. Corporate farming has taken over. Running a small farming outfit took more work and was physically demanding. Not even when drunk, no acre of geography in the region could force a smile on the face of a small farmer. Summers were hell. Winters were hell, only colder. The Johnsons packed up and left years ago. At least, that is what the locals will tell you. Charlie's father, Ebbett Abner, had slowly become one of those failed farmers. He had to supplement his meager income by working part-time at minimum wage at the local sugar beet plant, Western Sugar. Ebbett had abandoned Joy years ago, though he didn't know it then. Infertile land will do that to you. He'd taken over the rundown farm from his dead father, Ezekiel. It was a prairie tradition. Ebbett was a predictable man. Emma saw that as an anchor that was dragging her down. Emma, or M as he called her, always appeared in his nightmares. He was so blue he often slept with one of her empty perfume bottles under his piss-yellow pillow. Ebbett had stolen the essence container from her goodbye suitcase just before he'd taken her down to the Greyhound Depot in Scotts Bluff. She was hell-bent on proving her intelligence by abandoning the entire family. She left in the winter of 2002. Rats love sugar beets. If you work at Western Sugar and haven't been bitten by a rat, the workers, men, and women refer to you as a pussy. They looked for little William Drake. Okay, maybe easier than they'd look for someone who was likable or had a better social standing, but at least they put in the effort. Billy's best friend, Charlie Abner, 12, refused to search back then. Charlie knew better. That winter seemed colder than ever, but it wasn't. After nearly a year, Sheep's Creek gave up on Billy. Worst, his memory was long gone and buried nearly two years after he disappeared. His family was destined never to celebrate one day of his life. Charlie and Billy had explored every inch of the desolate territory near Sheep's Creek. There were abandoned wells to rappel down, deserted houses to explore, and the occasional farm that nature had taken back. As sure as the factory's sugar beet rats gained physical stature, so had their predators. 
bobcats became lions, coyotes turned into wolves, and swallows evolved into goshawks. They'd visited the old Mackenzie farmhouse on multiple occasions, Billy and Charlie. Oh, sure, a family had been butchered there back in the 19th century. All the kids in town had talked about that incessantly, but that wasn't the reason they'd loved to explore the old place. Some say Nebraska's only UFO had been spotted hovering over the fallen Mackenzie shitstorm, but that wasn't the only reason the two boys loved the imploded wooden graveyard farm. It's what they imagined lived inside the main farmhouse. Pickled Natalie Clements ignored the doctor's recommendations down at Scott's Bluff Medical. She was a protective mother. It's just in case that goddamned rat had rabies, said Dr. Vindrickson. We better schedule your daughter for a series of required shots in Omaha, Mrs. Clements. Hell nah, Dr. Vindrickson. From what I've heard, those shots are some painful shit. The needles are about a foot long. Facing such resistance, all the physician could do was patch up the young girl. It wasn't pretty. He had a hunch none of this would end well. Within a month, Mother Natalie wouldn't ever be fickled another day in her life again. Her daughter, Sue's lips, had swollen so much that they exploded. Natalie couldn't get enough iced water down her daughter's throat. The family ordered the caretaker to keep the lid on the casket closed at the funeral. The day the girl was buried, a local preacher said some excellent words over her, and for good measure, he threw some dirt in the rocky hole. She was buried in the Sheep's Creek Presbyterian Church Cemetery. On that gray day, sadness hung in the sky like a dark gray bridge about to collapse. Reverend Sparkles never mentioned the oversized rats once. That was in 2006. Over time, Billy and Charlie learned a lot about the oversized rats. They were everywhere, but mostly at the local sugar beet factory. At Western Sugar, they mostly dined on sugar beets. Not just sugar beets, but some of the largest and sweetest sugar beets on the planet. If sugar was cocaine, those damned rats would be constantly jacked up. The rat problem was so bad at the factory that the top boss in Omaha had actually assigned the plant mechanic an additional work function. He was ordered to prioritize his work based on the number of rats that needed killing. The other workers gave him the extra title of Pyramid Head, just like the vicious killer in the popular video game Silent Hill. Pyramid loved his new work title, by the way. Mr. Pemberton was one hell of a mechanic and an even better butcher. He killed giant rats in a number of disgusting ways. Most thought of him as sadistic and that he took his extra work assignment too personally. Pyramid Head could fix anything that ticked or clanked funny, except when his heart ran out of gear oil. They'd found Pyramid Head, at least most of them, deceased under a well-greased conveyor assemblage that had frozen up. It was on a late Saturday night. His face was mostly eaten away. Somehow he'd fallen into a mess of rusty moving metal parts that tossed him around and chewed him up pretty good. Parts of him had fallen through the moving assembly, causing the entire operation to grind to a halt. Jesus, his beer belly was missing. Don't get me wrong, Mr. Pemberton, or Pyramid Head, was ugly. He had sharp eyelids and jumbo-sized ears. 
he wore his smile crooked, but that had nothing to do about how his looks had been ruined. In fact, most of his face had been removed, including his nose, ears, and lips. His funeral service was at the Episcopal Chapel and included a closed coffin. Many locals attended. The authorities never blamed Mr. Pemberton's death on the depraved, contaminated rats. Pyramid's worn-out ticker was responsible for that. Still, most of us workers disagreed. They were suspicious. The forklift driver discovered Pyramid had requested a few days off work without pay. As far as the rest of our graveyard shift, we were desperate to keep feeding our families. When you're hungry, you can overlook a lot of crazy shit for a steady paycheck. Rumors of celestial beings and the horrors of furry creatures blew in off the Great Plains that winter in gales. Maybe one of those crazed beavers from down off the Platte River tore him apart, just maybe. Sissy, a machine operator, smoked a lot of ganja on the night shift. It didn't take much to give her the munchies or challenge her warped imagination. Hell no, said Gus in the break room. It was a woodchuck. I've seen him that big, he said. Gus was the night shift foreman. He'd be town mayor material if Sheep's Creek had such a thing. And then there was Jensen and his two cents. Jensen was a gruff young man who'd spent most of his adult life in the sugar beet plant. He might have gotten the closest. After all, he had a high school diploma, even though it had only taken him around six years. Nope, he said with authority. I'm sure Pyramid Head was gnawed to death by a much larger predator. Maybe it was a wildcat or a supersized coyote. Knowing the sugar plant was cavernous enough to hide a tiger, Jensen had captured the crew's imagination, even though what he said was impossible. And yet, everyone kept an eye out for the different creatures going forward, including the ones with orange and black stripes. A storm of years had stacked themselves as high as snowdrifts over the desolate Sheep's Creek Prairie. Charlie has been attending college. He'd returned to Sheep's Creek on Thanksgiving break. He was in his third year at Wayne State. He had yet to decide on a major. Charlie was cautious, not knowing what the future held. Oh, Charlie had taken an extra week off. His father had died. It was 2018, and no one had died from COVID yet, at least nobody in Sheep's Creek. Charlie needed to tie some legal knots together before returning to school, including getting his father buried, after he'd planned on leaving the prairie town for good. Charlie's dad had been eaten alive. What remained of Ebed were bones, hollowed out bones with most of the marrow having been sucked out. He'd been discovered by a Sheep's Creek Volunteer Fire Department member. He'd been found about a quarter mile south of the old Mackenzie farmstead, the well-known haunted farmhouse. It would take a few days to identify him for sure. A Scots Bluff medical examiner had to be paid to identify the body and conduct the autopsy. But the local mortician knew it was Ebbett for God's sake. He recognized him by the boots that held the splintered leg bones. Ebbett's boots were more holes than leather. Cause of death was listed as consumption. Most of Ebbett's throat was missing, and all of his innards. Little was left in terms of flesh and meat. 
His calves, thighs, and ass had been consumed. Many of the bones had been cracked as if he had been dropped out of a dark Nebraska sky. Some looked like a hickory handle axe had chopped them. Charlie was confident the haunted Mackenzie farmhouse played a part in his father's demise. Before Charlie entered the ghostly farmhouse, he cracked open the double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun he'd retrieved from his old bedroom closet. He'd killed plenty of bad angels with the powerful gun. Charlie and his father, Ebbett, had often joked about how beautiful pheasants were, all dressed up in their freckled red-green and translucent feathered capes. They looked like angels, Pops. The words circled inside Charlie's skull like a rollerblade grudge match without a proper exit. He removed two buckshot shells from his canvas coat pocket, dropping his gloves in the snow. Thunk, thunk. Each yellow cylinder seated itself in barrel with only the brass rim saving them from falling through. Charlie snapped the barrel shut. Clack. Next, he calculated his steps up to where a door once hung. With both feet on the threshold, he reminisced about the rotting stench of the farmhouse. He also caught a whiff of freshly baked biscuits on a different wavelength, recently removed from Time's oven. He peered deeply into the kitchen where he imagined a family breakfast. Around an old farmhouse table, a family was smiling and laughing. With a resounding screech from above, they all disappeared. It was still there, the evil presence he and Bobby had discussed. Charlie strained against his thoughts, finally pulling them out of some dark wormholes. He remembered hearing about the Mackenzie family and what his father had said was left of them. He picked up the scent of blood from under the kitchen floorboards. The Mackenzies, at least most of their plasma, had been mixed with frozen dirt below. It was coagulated and sappy. Charlie cracked the barrel open again. Snap. He needed to reassure himself he'd loaded the gun outside in the cold Nebraska winter. He needed to prove he wasn't hallucinating. His hands ached. His fingers were purple, gloveless. And there it was again, that exciting sound. Charlie had always interpreted the sound as something that came from a dragon. His friend Billy had heard the sound and he'd sought out the danger on his own like a moth to a flame. Charlie stood silent at the base of the common stairwell and gazed upward. There was a fetid smell. It was fresh rat blood. He'd experienced it once when he and his mother had dropped his father's lunch at the beet factory. The beet factory was nothing if not a sweet mix of sugar, rat guts, and rat shit. Nothing moved at Western Sugar Beet Factory unless it was greased with the scent of rats. Large, impossibly sized rats the size of vicious bulldogs. Each valve, switch, and gear had been lubed with their greasy decay. Unless you renewed the facility, killing rats at Western Sugar was something you did to keep your job. The parent corporation had no time to wet nurse any of its employees. Production was life. Westerners spent more on death bait than on fake gold retirement watches. Charlie thought the sound was somehow different this late in the day, though. It was more guttural and disturbing. He licked his lips as he placed one boot over the other up the wooden steps. He wiped the nearly frozen snot from his upper lip using his nearly frostbitten hand. 
He felt his lips. They were numb. Charlie imagined each step a wooden drum, each step leading him closer to the hangman's gallows. The floor in the master bedroom buckled and creaked. The wind howled down the stairs, cold and alien-like, an iced cold stream from another planet. Icy fingers of wind raced down the back of Charlie's flannel collar. His vertebrae were freezing piano keys. The sweet melody of Beethoven's Furlis slowly played in his mind. This version was Germanic and dark. They'd both wanted to kill the thing, he and Bobby, for the longest time. It had taken all their courage. But now, Bobby was gone. Charlie was alone. So alone and frightened. Near the top of the steps, light and dark exchanged places. Daylight had thickened into the glue of impending darkness. Impossibly so. The lack of oxygen caused Charlie's fingertips to tingle as he gripped the shotgun's trigger works. Charlie looked down at the gun to draw courage from it. He advanced forward, ever slowly. He stopped at the master bedroom threshold. A door once hung there. Brass hinges are now gone, along with knob and door hinges. He peered into the nearly empty room. Fear coated the back of his throat with the taste of rust and iodine. The room appeared empty, except for a faceless chest of drawers and a crooked family photo on a vacant wall. He lifted his eyes upward. He examined the jagged, body-sized hole in the ceiling. Sundown snowflakes sifted through the ceiling opening. Obviously, the roof had a large hole in it. Something intuitive and ancient inside him had told him to run. That avenging anyone or anything is like a body without bones. It can never exist. It took all of Charlie's strength to shove the laminated vestibule. He stopped shoving just under the gaping black hole in the ceiling. Run! Run! Native chance advised him to run and never look back. His skull was a drum. Charlie ignored the warning signs. He hoisted himself up on top of the dresser. He could hear the shuffling sound in the attack, but he repressed the sound. Next thing you know, he watched himself lifting the shotgun through the opening and placing it on the floorboard above. Using all his strength, he lifted himself through the slivery opening. Somehow, after sitting, he found his footing, standing with the loaded shotgun. He became disoriented and dizzy. The smell of ammonia was feasting on the room's oxygen. Charlie nearly fainted, falling to the floor. On the floor, he began to crawl. He crawled several feet while dragging his shotgun by its barrel. Charlie bumped into what appeared to be a large nest. Raccoons, he thought. But no, the nest was the size of a woodpile. Charlie lost his breath. Surely his ribcage would explode from the anxiety. He placed his left hand on his chest. His chest swelled, deflated, much too fast, he thought. No, he didn't imagine anything. In the dim light, dog-sized carcasses, fur, and the bones of large animals had been strewn over the attic floor. And then there were these pellets, smelly pellets the size of bowling balls with a mixture of jawbones and teeth. He would have sworn they were owl pellets if he didn't know any better. 
chatter spilled over the side of the nest. Charlie attempted to prop himself up and peer into the nest. He laid his arm on the edge of it, attempting to pull himself up. Pink, fleshy creatures latched onto Charlie's left arm, all beak and wrinkled leather. Their beaks were scythes. They deboned much of his flesh in an instant before he could tug away what was left of his arm. Charlie reeled back, hitting the floor with a bang. He skittered on his ass until he hit the exposed wall. Instinctually, he quickly removed the yellow bandana he'd placed around his face to keep the stink at bay. Charlie hurriedly turned the bandana into a rope using his hand, right arm, and teeth. He cinched the yellow rope around the splintered bone and flesh to stop the bleeding. He wanted to cry out for his mother. Something dropped into the attic through the larger hole in the roof, maybe three feet by four feet. It appeared to be a griffin. Charlie's mind turned into a horror pinwheel. In ancient times, it was believed that these creatures were half lion and half eagle. Griffins, their front paws sporting eagle talons. Charlie remembered this from school. The creature had an owl's face and a lion's body. It slowly moved toward Charlie, its claws scraping against the boards on the floor. Charlie held his breath, hoping it would disappear. Directly in front of Charlie, the creature spread its wings, filling the room like a beautiful feathered geisha fan. It flapped its wings as it jumped up and down, clacking its claws and wildly shrieking. With its forked tongue extended, it appeared more dragon than an owl. Its long tail whipped back and forth, striking the ceiling and walls. Feathers covered most of the creature's tawny face, just not enough to hide its beautiful emerald eyes. And then suddenly, its shape shifted, drawing closer to Charlie, its face now more rodent than avian. The magnificent beast was so close. Charlie could smell its fleshy snout and the decades of decay between its sharp yellow teeth. The creature gnashed its teeth as it moved forward. Its head was massive, an owl, a rat, and then a lion. Charlie pulled hard on both triggers. In an instant, it was over. The sweet smell of ignited gun smoke bellowed and filled all the grayness of the sizable attic. The monster had fallen against the side wall and piled and decayed wooden rafters. Blood poured from its throat as it gargled and frantically spun out of control, finally stilling. Oddly enough, the first thing Charlie imagined was living a good life, only without his left arm. Somehow he'd manage. Hell no, he'd thrive somehow. He'd eventually marry and have a family of his own. He'd end up anywhere other than the state of Nebraska. And yet, it wasn't meant to be. As the three hatchlings tortured their throats for more food, Charlie whispered, Quiet, quiet please. Then louder, God damn it, quiet down you crazed bastards. Charlie wasn't himself. He was enraged. His screaming voice only served to inspire the bloodthirsty spawn. That's when Charlie observed how dark the attic had grown. Something had covered the giant gaping hole in the cedar rooftop above him, fitting itself through the large hole in the pitched roof. Another creature appeared, only it was larger and fiercer looking. <laughs> 
It was the father of whatever had taken his left arm. As his wings receded, the larger beast dropped dog-sized rats into the nest. The nest churned with fur, flesh, and blood. Tar-filled blood flowed over the top of the nest. The muck was filled with squirming maggots. Thinking this new creature must be confused, Charlie watched as it stomped in the blood of its mate. Charlie held his ears as if to keep them from exploding. Decibels of shrill, bone-chilling screeches shuffled the shingles and rafter. Feathers morphed into razor blades and scales as the creature's claws turned into curved knives. Evil's beak was now a guillotine. It quieted and sized up Charlie, all the while communicating. Yes, the creature spoke in an ancient language using silent syllables fully understood by Charlie. Charlie fumbled to reload his browning shotgun to no avail. His fingers were icicles. With his right hand, he clawed at the bottom of his brown canvas coat pocket. He'd used up most of his ammo while practicing on imaginary targets. There had to be one last shell. Charlie cracked open the shotgun. He placed the invisible plastic shell in the gun's chamber. He pointed the barrel at the magnificent creature. Everything was possible, he thought. In turn, the entity walked toward Charlie on its paws of knives. It raised the upper part of its beak until its tongue protruded. Charlie swore he was looking into the eyes of a tiger. Charlie pulled the trigger as the monster's face turned into his mother's face, his father's face, and then his beloved friend Bobby's face, the part that remained of it. Nothing. Instantly, the monster relaxed. In Bobby's voice, it spoke. And so, where did all this avenging get us, Charlie? The massive creature shapeshifted for the last time into something horrid and unrecognizable. It began to peck the clothing away from Charlie's body. It pecked out Charlie's eyes. It took flesh in portions from Charlie's body. Feeding the hatchlings would be a priority. It would be a long, cold winter. I hope you enjoyed Horror at Sheep's Creek, Nebraska, as written by Dan A. Cardoza and performed by Trevor Rines. Trevor Rines sounds like a dragon, like a landslide, like a force of nature, according to one evil idol fan. A Toronto-based voice actor since 2005, his low, rumbling voice has been heard on TV, radio, film, documentaries, audio dramas, podcasts, old-time radio play reenactments, and narrating on stage with orchestras. On that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network. We have Horror Hill, airing Thursdays for your hardcore, more brutal offerings. Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern down-home horror. Fear from the Heartland airs Wednesdays. 
Longtime resident Otis Jiry has a show on Sunday nights that features two stories on the standard edition, as well as two more which can be accessed through our patrons area. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet Dreams. <laughs>Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.